Welcome to Kidney Essentials, a podcast for medical students, residents, and all nephro-curious practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. A shout out this episode to Taipei, where we have noticed we have a large number of listeners, and we're so happy to have you. My name is Sarah Young. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Colorado, and I'm here with my co-hosts. My Twitter handle is at nephrocritic. Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I am a nephrologist at the University of Colorado and Denver VA. My Twitter handle is at Sophia underscore kidney. And my name is Judy Blaine. I'm also um, a nephrologist at the University of Colorado. And my Twitter handle is at Judy Blaine too. But in full disclosure, I do not tweet very much. Thank you for your honesty there, Judy. Um, So we are going to do this podcast a little differently than we've done our previous ones. Um, Today, we are going to review articles that we read in 2020 and that changed our practice. So this isn't going to be a full journal club, but simply a reflection on articles that were published and that have changed how we're taking care of patients. So I'm going to start off the discussion with an article that was published in the American Journal of Kidney Disease by Min Zahn et al. on behalf of the Crick Study Investigators. The Crick Study is the Chronic Renal Insufficiency Cohort Study, which is exactly what it says it is, which is a cohort study of patients with chronic kidney disease. In this analysis, they looked at almost 4,000 patients between the ages of 21 and 70, with EGFRs of between 20 and 70, and looked at outcomes based on whether they were on NSAIDs or opiates. And the outcomes that they looked at included kidney failure, kidney failure plus a reduction in your GFR of 50%, death, hospitalizations before kidney failure. And what they found was for every single one of the outcomes they looked at, they were worse if you are on opiates. So the units that they measured were uh, rates of events per 100 visits. And so when they looked at death, there was a rate of 3.5 per 100 visits in opioids versus 1.4 in NSAIDs. For kidney failure requiring dialysis, it was 4.2 in patients on opioids versus 1.9 for patients on NSAIDs. When they looked at kidney failure requiring dialysis plus 50% decrease in GFR, it was 5.9 on opiates versus 2.4 in patients on NSAIDs. And they, when they looked at hospitalizations prior to going on dialysis, it was 108.6 in the opiate group versus 68. So this is a very uh, statistically complicated study, um, and they had to do a lot of uh, counting for differences in, um, in the two groups um, that could be from comorbidities. But the bottom line is they found that opioid use had a stronger association with adverse events than NSAIDs when looking at death, kidney failure, and hospitalizations. So um, I have begun to think of pain control and my chronic kidney disease patients differently than I have in the past. Um, Before I used to tell them, you know, no NSAIDs, Tylenol only, and maybe narcotics. Now I tell them, You know, if they can control their pain with nerve blocks, massage, TENS units, physical therapy, that's ideal. If they need something for pain, Tylenol should be their first choice. Then if they need something after that, the lowest dose of NSAID they can possibly um, use to to control their pain and to, to avoid narcotics. 
So that was one of the most important studies for me personally in managing patients in the past year. Yeah, I totally agree, Sarah. I think that that's, it's a very impactful study and it has also changed what I'm doing. Um, really the opportunity to feel like, you know, at least um, in a, in a selective group of patients to say that NSAIDs is safe and a, a better, at least a safer alternative to opioids um, and can contribute to quality of life in some patients who already have, um, you know, some impaired quality of life is, is, a, is a great thing to offer. Yeah, I agree. I usually try to get my patients to take Tylenol first, but for some patients, particularly with inflammatory conditions, NSAIDs, is the, they say, is the only thing that really helps with the pain. Sophie, you want to talk about your article? Yeah. Um, so I am going to talk about uh, the article, um, Depagliflozin in Patients with Chronic Kidney Disease. And this was by Hearspink et al., and it was um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2020. Um, basically, the nephrology, cardiology, um, overall medical world has sort of been a buzz recently with um, dipagliflozin, impagliflozin, canagliflozin, and these are all a part of the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, they're all at least classes of the SGLT2 inhibitors, and really, it, basically, SGLT2 stands for sodium glucose co-transporter 2, and basically blocks reabsorption of sugar in the kidney, and then you end up peeing it out. Um, and actually, the, um, this is called the DAPA-CKD trial, and it comes on the heels of a multitude of other positive trials for the SGLT2 inhibitors, just to name a few, is a Declaratimi, um, Impag-Reg Outcome, Canvas, and Credence. Um, but this one is excited because it's, it's got a couple other things um, tossed in. In any case, um, this is a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, um, multi-center trial. Um, and it's with 386 sites, 21 countries. Uh, and basically, the intervention is it's randomized to dipagliflozin or um, the MET or placebo in a one-to-one -one ratio. What's unique is this is uh, in patients with or without type 2 di diabetes, uh, GFR extends down to 25 mils per minute. Um, and then, of course, the um, albumin to creatinine ratio is 200 to 5,000 milligrams per gram. Um, just uh, the primary um, outcomes, or the primary outcome is, one, it's a composite outcome, and it's basically from a renal perspective. So it's decline of at least 50% of EGFR, onset of end-stage um, in kidney disease, and then death from renal causes. The cardiovascular outcome is hospitalization for heart failure or death from cardiovascular causes. And then the final is death from any cause. Um, overall, I, you know, basically from the composite kidney outcome, the cardiovascular outcomes and death outcomes, basically they all favor um, dipagliflozin, which was um, fantastic. But moreover, I mean, basically the overall conclusion was that um, in patients who have chronic kidney disease, regardless of the presence or absence of diabetes, the risk of a composite um, of renal um, outcomes, like a sustained decline in the estimated GFR of at least 50%, and stage kidney disease or death from renal or cardiovascular causes was significantly lower with dipagliflozin than with placebo. Um, so I think the way this has changed my practice and probably many of our practices, um, for the longest time, we kind of felt like we were limited in what we could offer our patients who 
had chronic kidney disease, diabetic kidney disease, um, and then albuminuria. And then this is like a new, um, a new tool or, or a new drug in our tool belt that we can use. And it seems, you know, it's uh, protective from a cardiovascular and renal perspective and then just long-term mortality. So it's really exciting um, for us to be able to utilize this and actually to be able to offer it early on and really feel like we might have some, uh, some additional risk reduction strategies in these patients. Um, specifically, I'm at the VA, and so we actually have been able to implement it rather quickly, which is exciting. We use empagliflozin as of right now, and it's because of the previous um, previous limitations and other trials um, that have sort of limited us from expanding beyond that to canagliflozin and depagliflozin. But in the grand scheme of things, I think we're really excited. We have a really high population of CKD and diabetic kidney disease, so we're really excited to be able to offer these to our patients. And it's resulted in the term just flozinate them, which That's means right. give them a <laughs> SGL2 inhibitor. We're all flozinators. Yeah, I think it's great. It's the first new thing since ACEs and ARBs to really make a huge impact. And it's like I see a lot of patients with proteinuric kidney disease, so it's really exciting to have something to offer them other than just an ACE or an ARB. Yep. It's a new world. Judy, you're up. So um, I study um, glomerulonephritis and proteinuric kidney diseases, and so the trial that I was really excited about was actually published in 2019 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's the MENTOR trial by Fervenza et al. And this is a trial on a more simplified way to treat a kidney disease called membranous nephropathy, which is an autoimmune disease um, that generally tends to affect people starting around the age of 40, and um, it can have a relapsing and remitting course, um, and in certain cases can lead to end-stage renal disease. And the previous treatment regimen was pretty complicated and hard to follow. Um, so this is uh, a trial looking at an easier treatment regimen with rituximab, which is um, an, 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 a monoclonal antibody that um, inhibits um, B cell production of antibodies. So for this trial, there were 138 patients. The mean age was 52. They had relatively well-preserved kidney function with a mean serum creatinine of around 1.2, and they had a lot of protein in the urine. So the mean proteinuria was around 9 grams a day. Um, they all had to be on an ACE or an ARB to try and lower the protein in their urine uh, for at least three months. And they were randomized to IV rituximab, uh, which was just given at one gram on day one, and then another gram 14 days later. And this treatment regimen would be repeated at six months if the patient showed at least a 25% reduction in their protein excretion. Or the other group uh, was randomized to oral cyclosporin, which is a medication that we uh, use as well to try to meet, treat immune-mediated kidney diseases. Um, and they got the oral cyclosporin for six months. And that, again, was continued for another six months if they showed a reduction in proteinuria of at least 25%. And then they looked for a complete or a partial remission at 24 months. So just to define a complete remission, that means almost a complete reduction in all proteinuria. So the proteinuria would go down to less than or equal to 0.3 grams or 300 milligrams a day. Um, and, that with a, and that would mean that also that your serum albumin would go up, 
and would be at least three and a half grams per deciliter. They also looked for, or they also looked if the patient had a partial remission, and a partial remission is defined as uh, at least a 50% reduction in proteinuria from baseline, um, and the proteinuria has to be less than nephrotic range, so less than 3.5 grams a day. So what they found uh, when they compared the two groups, the rituxan group or the cyclosporin group, is that at 12 months, about 60% of patients in the rituxan group and 52% in the cyclosporin group had either a complete or a partial remission. And so in this case, they found that rituximab was non-inferior to cyclosporin. And what non-inferior means is um, it was pretty comparable uh, to cyclosporin. It didn't have to be perfect, but it was pretty comparable. At 24 months, however, 60% of patients in the rituxan group and 20% in the in cyclosporin group had a complete or partial remission. And so rituxan was actually statistically superior uh, to cyclosporin. They found that slightly more patients uh, in the cyclosporin group had serious adverse events compared to the rituxan group. And so their conclusion was that basically rituxan was not inferior to cyclosporin at inducing a complete or partial remission at 12 months and actually superior to uh, cyclosporin at maintaining proteinuria remission at 24 months. And this is important because membranous is a lifelong disease, and so we want to be able to treat people with something that will keep them in remission for as long as possible and preferably the rest of their lives. And so the way this has changed my practice is that now, instead of reaching for cyclosporin, which has to be taken over a long period of time, or another treatment regimen, which also takes a long, at least six months um, to administer, I reach for rituxan, which can be given um, just twice in a two-week period and then repeated again at six months. And it's also nice because it's an IV medication, so if the patient shows up for the infusion, you know for sure that they're getting the rituxan rather than then them having to take pills very consistently um, on sometimes a very complicated regimen for at least six months. Yeah, I love this study too. I mean, Ritux is so much easier to administer to patients as a lower side effect profile. Sometimes I felt like we were sort of looking for a disease that Ritux would treat well. Um, but uh, so this, is, this has really been a, a great study. I agree. That's all I have to say. Very short and The other thing I'd like to say is that 130 patients doesn't sound like a ton of patients when you think about like huge cardiology studies or even oncology studies. But for a, a glomerular nephritis trial, 130 patients is really impressive because these are very rare diseases. Right, it is. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys about my second study. Um, so this was a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So you guys have already heard about that journal several times on this podcast already. So this study was published in 2020, and it was called Management of Coronary Artery Disease in Patients with Advanced Kidney Disease. It's also known as the Ischemia CKD trial. It was a publication of a smaller subset of the larger ischemia trial. But in this study, um, what they did was they took 777 patients with moderate to severe ischemia on stress tests and an EGFR of less than 30 or patients who were on dialysis. And they randomized them to either medical therapy for their, for their coronary disease versus angio within 30 days followed by cabbage or a PCI. 
and they found um, that there was no difference in mortality or acute myocardial infarction in the two groups, meaning if they did medical management versus intervention. What they did find a statistically significant difference in was um, the risk of stroke and the risk of new onset dialysis in patients who um, were in the aggressive intervention group. So this was one of the few um, cardiology studies done specifically in our patient population. And prior to this study, I would get quite annoyed when <laughs> cardiologists did want did not want to intervene on my patients um, who had abnormal stress tests. And I often felt like they were maybe getting the short end of the, of the stick because they had CKD. Um, but now I feel like, you know, maybe aggressive care is a reasonable option in these patients. So um, especially since we know most of our patients will die of heart disease before they ever end up on dialysis, I had prior to the study really advocated and pushed for cardiologists to intervene more aggressively in this patient population. But now I am more comfortable when the cardiologist tells me that they just want to pursue a medical management strategy. And it certainly has cut down on the phone calls between me and cardiologists <laughs> and has changed um, the talking points that I use when talking to patients um, who have abnormal stress tests, who have chronic kidney disease. Any other comments about the ischemia CKD trial? I mean, I think that's a pretty major trial because, um, Sarah, like you, I think, you know, I'm sort of trained to believe that cardiolo cardiologists may not always want to intervene on our patients because they were too unstable or too sick. But now there's actually data saying that it actually may be not in the patient's best interest to, to have aggressive interventions. So I think it's, it's, it's um, pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, it, what's, what's interesting is when I became aware of this study, I really haven't had as many opportunities to really, um, employ this new knowledge, but I do, um, think that it's great to have a little bit better understanding and a little bit more peace of mind, um, in this population of patients. Sophie, what's your second study? So my second study is titled effect of phenarinone. It's a mouthful. Effect of phenarinone on chronic kidney disease outcomes in type 2 diabetes. And this was by um, Bacris et al., uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, I also believe in October of 2020. Imagine that. Um, and phenarinone is a non-steroidal mineral corticoid receptor inhibitor, or excuse me, antagonist. Um, and you all are probably more familiar with, uh, you know, spironolactone and aplirinone, and these are both steroidal mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, and that's generally what we use in our patients from a hypertension perspective. Um, sometimes if we have somebody who's got proteinuria um, and we've sort of exhausted our other options, we'll kind of try that as well because there is some signal suggesting that there is reduction in urinary protein or albumin excretion after the treatment of a steroidal mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. Um, but I would say that probably um, hard clinical out outcomes are, are lacking a bit still. Um, in any case, so phenarinone is non-steroidal. It's a selective mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. Um, and it's known to have um, more potent anti-inflammatory and anti-fibrotic anti effects compared to our steroidal 
mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, um, at least based on preclinical trials. So basically what this study is designed to do is test the, the hypothesis that finerenone will slow CKD progression, um, reduce cardiovascular mortality, um, excuse me, morbidity and mortality among patients with advanced CKD and type 2 diabetes. So this was a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled multi-center, multi-center clinical trial. Um, and the um, intervention was uh, finerenone versus placebo. Um, the outcome, the primary outcome was time to event analysis, and it was a composite of kidney failure or a sustained decrease of at least um, 40% in the EGFR from baseline. I now need to double check my knowledge on that. It wasn't 50%. Um, anyways, we'll go with 40 and then I'll double check and correct myself if I'm wrong, guys. Um, and or death from renal causes. So, and then the secondary outcome was another time to event analysis, and that was a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, or hospitalization for heart failure. Um, so, again, there was a lot of statistical stuff that went on here, but basically the outcome was that in patients with CKD, CKD and type 2 diabetes, Treatment with finerenone resulted in lower risks of CKD progression and cardiovascular events than placebo. Um, I think what's interesting is when we look at our spironolactone and our aplerinone, which have um, uh, some of the some of these risks of hyperkalemia. Um, you know, of course, spironolactone has risk of gynecomastia. Um, I think there's a question as to whether or not these um, non-steroidal selective mineral corticoid um, antagonists are going to um, perhaps be a better option for our patients, particularly with the addition of the antiprobiotic and anti-inflammatory um, effects. I think overall, though, um, this isn't necessarily practice changing for me yet. However, I think it's incredibly interesting um, and has a lot of potential. Uh, and the reason being is, as I alluded to earlier, you know, our type 2 diabetics, our CKDers, for a long time, we were really limited to very few items to offer them to help try and sort of reduce their risk of progression of disease. So now we have our SGLT2 inhibitors that we're super excited about, and now we have some other options that may be a little bit less from a side effect profile, um, like um, compared to our um, our steroidal, steroidal um, mineral corticoid antagonists like, um, like uh, spironolactone uh, and aplerinone. Um, so, like I said, I think the jury's probably still still out. There may have to be a head-to-head with finerenone or other uh, non-steroidal. This is start, starting to get to be a mouthful, but finerenone and you know our other either spironolactone or plerenone. But I think that there is a lot of um, potential, and so we'll have to see what happens in the future with these studies. Yeah, I agree. It was an interesting study. I'm still sort of trying to figure out how it it would, how I would use it, um, moving forward, especially in light of the SGL2 inhibitor. Um, but, uh, well, I guess we'll find out. Maybe, maybe we'll be talking about this more in a 2021. It's funny. It's funny. That study came out and then I was on service and I saw like three people who were on, um, aldosterone blockers, um, and an ACE 
and then got sick and then came in with really severe hyperkalemia. <laughs> so I'm a little, I'm a little scared. scared now. I'm scared of that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that there, I mean, there is a population of people that think that, you know, the mechanism of, you know, these, uh, of these drugs still probably would increase the risk of hyperkalemia. And that certainly was still an adverse event here um, in this study. So I think that, like I said, the jury's still out, but it'll be interesting to see what comes. I, I, I'm a little concerned that some of the cost is going to be uh, of, of the drug will be a little bit challenging to actually institute it in the future, but we'll see where things go. On a completely separate note, and this could be edited out, Seamus, if you want to, but I'm just perplexed how spironolactone, no one, people will stop taking spironolactone because they have gynecomastia, but people will not stop smoking marijuana in Colorado when they get gynecomastia. So I just feel like, <laughs> I mean, you know. I don't think spironolactone makes you feel good. <laughs> well, let's, let's just be honest. <laughs> well, even these people who come in with this hyperemesis from marijuana, they go back out there and then smoke it again. They're in denial. I know. It's addictive. Uh, well, I don't think spironolactone or spironolactone is addictive. So someone just needs to make an addictive antihypertensive medication, and then this would all get solved. Exactly. Keep it in, Seamus. <laughs> um, so I have the last study. Um, so again, this is a glomerulonephritis trial. It goes by the um, name of Pexivas. Um, and it was a trial again in the New England Journal, published in 2020 by Walsh et al. And basically this was a, a trial looking at the best way to treat anchor vasculitis. So anchor vasculitis is, again, an autoimmune disease. It's often a systemic disease. It has pulmonary manifestations um, and renal manifestations. It's very life-threatening. Um, before we had really good treatment for anchor vasculitis, it was almost uniformly fatal at five years. So a really, really aggressive and destructive autoimmune disease. Um, and there's been... Uh, for really severe anchor vasculitis, so the standard of care included something called plasma exchange, which is where um, plasma, blood is removed from the body, run through a machine, the plasma is separated out and discarded, and then the patient is given either albumin or uh, somebody else's plasma back. Um, and um, there was an old trial showing that plasma exchange might be effective that was then sort of possibly refuted it with a 10-year follow-up. And so this trial was really trying to get to the heart of, is plasma exchange good for treating ankyovasculitis? Um, and then the other question it tried to answer is, how much steroids do you need uh, to treat ankyovasculitis? Because these patients are often on high-dose steroids for a prolonged period of time. Um, and steroids, as we all know, have lots and lots of side effects, um, besides also being uh, powerful immunosuppressants and increasing the risk of infection. So the question was, could you get away with a lower dose of steroids? So this is, trial design is a little bit complicated, so bear with me, but it basically was a randomized multinational trial, so done in many different countries, not just the U.S., uh, with a two-by-two two design. So the two-by-two two design consisted of either PLEX, or that's plasma exchange, versus no PLEX, and then either two, and two steroid regimens, either a standard dose steroids, so like the normal high-dose prolonged course of steroids versus a reduced dose. Um, to actually treat the anchor vasculitis, all patients 
received ethocytoxan, which um, is a drug that was initially used to treat cancer, but it's a very powerful immunosuppressant, or rituxan, which is the same drug that, that I mentioned in the Mentor trial. Um, this was an amazing trial from a GN standpoint because it was huge. Um, they somehow managed to recruit 350 patients in each group. So again, there were four groups, uh, plasma exchange with standard steroids, plasma exchange with reduced steroids, um, no plasma exchange and standard steroids, and no plasma exchange and reduced steroids. So by GN stands as an absolutely amazing recruitment. Um, the mean age of the patients was about 63. Um, they had pretty bad renal failure. The mean creatinine was 3.7 mg per deciliter. And some of them had, about 50% of them had um, lung manifestations of anchovasculitis seen mostly by pulmonary hemorrhage. And the mean follow-up was around three years. Um, all patients initially received IV steroids, which is kind of considered standard of care. Um, they did that for either anywhere between one and three days. Um, and then they received oral steroids, steroids, which were dosed based on their weight. The patients in the reduced steroid group received um, the same dose as the patients in the normal steroid group uh, for one week. And then at week two, they started a pretty aggressive taper. And so by six months, the um, cumulative dose of steroids in the reduced dose group was less than 60% of that in the standard group. Um, the patients in the plasma exchange groups all received seven doses of plasma exchange over the course of 14 days. Um, and then all patients after what we call the initial induction, which is the initial treatment with high-dose steroid, stand-dose steroids or, or reduced-dose steroids and either cytoxin or rituxin, um, they were all placed on maintenance therapy with azathioprine. There was a hard primary outcome, which was death, which is a really hard outcome, um, death from any cause or end-stage kidney disease. And then there was also a secondary outcome, which is death from any cause, end-stage kidney disease, sustained remission, serious adverse events, serious infections within one year, and then a health-related quality of life score, which the patients had to complete. So what were the outcomes? Um, so um, at the end of the follow-up period, which was again around three years, death or end-stage kidney disease occurred in about 28% of patients in the plasma exchange group and 31% in um, the uh, no plasma exchange group. So this was not statistically significant. And there were also no differences in the secondary outcomes in the plasma exchange versus no plasma exchange group. And I'd just like to point out that you can see that anchovasculitis, even treated, is a serious disease because death occurred in, in almost a third of patients. Um, and if you looked at the steroid groups, death or end-stage kidney disease occurred in 20, about 28% of the standard steroid group and around 25% in the reduced steroid group, um, which uh, was not statistically significant. So apparently you can treat anchovasculitis with reduced dose of steroids. And the benefit of this is that they found significantly less infectious complications in the reduced steroid group. And so their conclusion, and the conclusion that I agree with, is that in patients with severe anchovasculitis, plasma exchange does not decrease your risk of end-stage kidney disease or death. And then reduced-dose steroids were non-inferior to standard-dose steroids in preventing death or end-stage kidney disease. And so this has really changed my practice because I now probably will not recommend 
doing plasma exchange for ankle vasculitis. Um, and I'd be much more willing to actually taper the steroids more aggressively than I would have been before. Yeah, so I've had three cases of ankle vasculitis since this um, study came out. And again, this is a huge study. We'll never see a study this big in ankle vasculitis ever again, probably. Um, and we, you know, we didn't plex any of them. And I was more aggressive in, um, in reducing the steroids. So um, I think it's dramatically changed what I'm doing too. Yeah, I can't say I've seen too many um, ankyvasculitis at the VA recently. But I will tell you that when I get one, I will treat them differently. Just come to the university. We'll have one within a few, a few weeks. <laughs> we have a lot. I don't know why we have a paucity of ankyvasculitis over there. Uh, the other really great thing about it is, uh, you know, all three of these patients, two of them were on dial, required dialysis at initiation. Uh, the two that required it are off, and the third one did not, did not need it. So um, I feel good about the fact that I did not plex them and um, was able to get them off steroids sooner. So. So this was a great, a little different podcast for us, but um, we hope you enjoyed it. We'll try to do this once a year where we sort of review articles that changed what we're doing. Any final comments for the audience, Sophie or Judy? Um, I was just going to say dingbat over here, meaning two fingers pointed at me, myself. I forgot to also mention um, the finerenone trial is also called Fidelio-DKD. My bad. <laughs> Okay, and we're also going to at some point have to have a discussion about how you pronounce the glyphlizins, because I thought it was canaglyphlizin. <laughs> that sounds and crazy. And I looked it up, and it wrote, and it said it to me that way, so we're going to have to have an argument about that at some point. Uh, but I think... I said the way Sophie says it. So like, I know. I, I heard that you do. Canaglyphlizin, canaglyphlizin, Yeah. So yeah. I say dapaglyphlizin. empaglyphlizin. Oh, man, those fellows over there have got to be like, what is she saying? <laughs> I'm going to have you guys Google Actually, I just shortened it. I, 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 I just say Dapa, Cano, Empire. I'm going to have you guys Google the, the how you say that, and we'll find out who's right. Or someone can tweet at us if they figure it out. Anyway, thanks again for joining us. As usual, please do not use our podcast um, for anything other than educational purposes. Um, and uh, what's our next podcast going to be on, guys? Sophie, are you doing it? or? Yeah, it's going to be on diabetic kidney disease. Woo-woo! Kind of fits in well with my hullabaloo that I did today. So that's right. Just flows in eight. <laughs> so please tune in for our next podcast. And if you have any questions or concerns or questions, uh, feel free to, to um, tweet at us. Although not Judy, because she doesn't not check. Me. Not me. <laughs> It'll go into the void. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, all of you for listening. And we will see you next month. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate it.